One definition of economic depression is two or more years of income stagnation or decline. And by that definition, you know, the working middle class is in a depression twice as long as the Great Depression. The data is crystal clear. That is at least 95% healthcare created. Employers are spending a lot more money than they did 20 years ago on employees. The problem is every dollar and then some has gone to healthcare. It's very easy to buy cruddy benefits. That's basically the default path. It's more work. It's definitely worth it, but it's more work to buy great benefits. It's entirely in your control to do this. If you believe otherwise, I believe you've been hoodwinked by an industry that's enabled the greatest wealth transfer in U.S. history. Welcome, everybody, to the Solving Healthcare podcast, where our mission is to promote companies that are positively disrupting the healthcare industry. We do this to help employers drive value by either improving health outcomes or lowering costs or both. Today, our guest is Dave Chase, co-founder of Health Rosetta and the author of two books. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to our chat. Yeah, likewise. And I, I, I have to say this is kind of a rock star moment. I know I told you before that we've met briefly, but you are have been instrumental to me in terms of the way I've changed my consulting style over the last two years. So personally, I want to say thank you for all that you're doing for the community and thank you for what you're doing to uh, help transform the healthcare industry. So thank you for everything that you do. Sure. Well, I just kind of consider myself uh, Johnny Appleseed. You know, people are out there doing their own work. I just kind of go out, spread the message. So happy to do that. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things I want to mention is that you are the author of two books. The first is The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, How to Deliver World-Class Healthcare to Your Employees at Half the Cost, and then The Opioid Crisis, The Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call. You're also the co-founder of Health Rosetta, which aims to accelerate the adoption of simple, practical, nonpartisan fixes to our healthcare system. I meant to say that earlier, but I figured I'd get it out at some point. So with that in mind, you said and mentioned your Johnny Appleseed. Can you talk a little bit about how you got to be where you are and why you founded Health Rosetta? Yeah, I mean, it really emanates from a personal you know, situation. I mean, I've been in the healthcare industry for a long time, but unfortunately, by the time I was in my late 30s, I'd had 10 friends my age or younger die. And obviously, those are all a gut punch. Uh, but the last one was particularly brutal because it was a friend that you know really should have had access to the best our healthcare system had to offer. She'd had a very successful tech career, done well, done the right things. But at the end of the day, it was a complete system failure. She had, you know, got the wrong cancer diagnosis, harmful treatment. At the end, she was, you know, medically, financially, and emotionally devastated by the healthcare system. And she was a single mother. She left behind a 10-year-old daughter. And the thing, I mean, obviously there were a lot of brutal things about that, but the thing that really hit me hard was the system failure that was really total. And I'd seen some similar things with some of my other friends. I realized, you know, that system, I was part of that system. And as I dug in, you know, certainly the way I was raised is if you see a problem and you don't do something about it, you're complicit. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was determined to really dig in. As I dug in, basically reentered healthcare. I'd been away for a while because uh, I'd kind of been frustrated with what was going on. I'm a tech startup guy, I guess you'd say. I mean, I worked for bigger companies earlier in my career. And I sometimes joke, I, you know, went looking for a market gap just as you do when you're starting a business. But what I found is the greatest heist in American history. You know, the fact is the working and middle class is in a 20-year-long economic depression, you know, because one definition of economic depression is two or more years of income stagnation or decline. And by that definition, you know, the working and middle class is in a depression twice as long as the Great Depression. The data is crystal clear that is at least 95% healthcare created. You know, the fact is employers are spending a lot more money than they did 20 years ago on employees. The problem is every dollar and then some has gone to healthcare. And so, you know, there's more to that story, but that was kind of what really put me on this journey, even though I hadn't been on the health benefits side at all. I'd been on more of the health IT side. 
Yeah, and I think what you're talking about is the net take-home pay if you look over the last, what, 20, 30 years? Yep. And yeah, so that, that's a, a staggering statistic. But in terms of your background, you, you, you mentioned you didn't start in benefits. You started as a, in the technology side of what we do. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I started my career implementing health IT systems in dozens of different hospitals working for what's now Accenture. And then I started Microsoft's healthcare basically their healthcare business, you know, which is they partner with industry specific companies. You know, you think about Microsoft makes Lego blocks, other people assemble those. And so, you know, signed the first partner on a Microsoft's platform 20 plus years ago. And, you know, today there's 28,000 partners globally just in healthcare. That's a that's nearly a $3 billion business for them. Wow. And so, you know, had a nice run there for sure and certainly got rewards. But unfortunately, what I was seeing was the only thing that hospitals really wanted to buy, even though those is technology that can make patients and doctors and nurses' lives better, was they just wanted to buy technology that would just game every reimbursement system there was to be had out there. And so that was ultimately why I departed was I basically didn't want to be a part of that, and I didn't know how to solve it at the time. And so it was only later that I started really digging in and thinking of it as more of a society's sort of massive social problem. You know, I look at it on the the scale of things like civil rights and energy independence and better food. I mean, it's that magnitude of problem. And that's what really caused me to dig in to study those types of large scale, long-term social movements. You know, this isn't something that gets fixed in a year or two. This is more of the 10 to 20 year journey. And Mm -hmm. so you know, at the end of the day, I said, okay, time to man up and, and jump in and get after it. Uh, and fair enough. And there's a lot of sideways conversations or other conversations that we can have just on the last 30 seconds of what you just said. I would like to read a quote from your latest book, The Opioid Crisis. The Opioid Crisis is America's largest public health crisis in 100 years, a self-inflicted wound caused by a catastrophically dysfunctional healthcare system featuring ill-defined health benefits and employers who are unwitting enablers. Fortunately, upstream solutions involving the same employers along with civil leaders and organizations have been created and proven. It's time to broaden their application and stop the crisis in its tracks. And with it, the system that has bankrupted so many families and communities. Now, we'll talk a little bit about Health Rosetta and what it, what it means. But when I read your books and read your books, obviously it talks about many of the things that brokers and consultants should be doing. But your book is really a message to employers. Can you expand on what that message is and what, what point you want to get across to the employers, the CEOs, CFOs, and chief operating officers and VPs of HR that are going to listen to this podcast? Yeah, definitely. You know, we look at it as, you know, we're all about the employers who truly believe what virtually every CEO says, that employees are their most valuable asset and are willing to accept the fact that in healthcare is entirely fixable as countless folks have proven. We've simply organized their successes. And what it comes down to is there's really two markets. There's the real market that's actually been exploding sort of almost out of view where there's a large market of cash-based healthcare because of high deductibles and, and other factors and direct contracts where sort of value extracting middlemen are removed. And then there's the rig market where prices hyperinflate, even though the underlying costs haven't fundamentally changed. And there's lots of good people working inside of that rig market. And like me, you know, I, I was part of that problem. You know, once upon a time, my job was, you know, there was a fancy title revenue cycle consultant, but it's just how do you get as big a bill out as fast as possible and get paid quickly. And so that's the thing I found is there's great people inside of flawed models and perverse incentives. And so the trick is just to awaken them. And once people are awakened, you know, they have that kind of crucible moment. Are they going to perpetuate the dysfunction or are they going to dedicate the rest of their career to make it right? And fortunately, there's tons of people in that category. And that's ultimately why we decided to actually create an organization to kind of help organize it. 
Yeah, and I have to say the uh, what what resonates to me in your books and and listening to your TED talk is that the message is really about employers empowering themselves, recognizing that the solution is bigger than they are, and that it's a call to action and a resolve to the for the collective will, if you will, to start the solutions locally. I just want to make sure that I'm capturing the spirit of what it is that I that I believe that you're trying to resonate to the employers and their obligation, if you will, to lead that charge. Absolutely. I mean, I should, it should be clear by now that the Calvary is not coming from D.C. to fix this. I mean, we've had both parties in full control and we're a fiercely nonpartisan organization. We say, okay, you know, if you actually look at these huge societal challenges we've had, they always get solved grassroots bottom up. You know, eventually politicians run to the front of the parade. And so the folks that we've been studying, increasingly working with, they just don't buy into the tyranny of low expectations that the best you can hope for is a less bad increase. I mean, it would make no sense in my view that we'd have low expectations. We spend 50 to 100% more than other countries. No country's got smarter, more passionate gratification delaying clinicians than you know the nurses and doctors that we have so why on earth would we have low expectations and so that's the beauty of it once you sort of shed those low expectations and make it happen you know incredible stuff can happen and that's what we're all about and and once you kind of put that out there you know it's a magnet right it attracts people you know magnets frankly also you know repels their things and that's fine if they're not ready no problem you know, there's plenty of people who are ready and are going to make a difference. And by the way, it's much better for their business, much better for their people, much better for their community. Uh, Agreed totally. And uh, if there's time, certainly talk about an experience I'm having right now in Houston with what I would just call the, the genesis of hopefully what's a, very, what's a much larger movement. Yeah. Uh, so you've been mentioned in Forbes magazine previously about what you call one of the most important jobs in America. And I, I don't know if you want to talk about what Health Rosetta does first, or if you want to answer that question as to what, what is the most important job as you see it in America right now. Yeah, let's talk about the most important job because it's the creation of Health Rosetta was just sort of an organic response, you know, mm-hmm. to what we were seeing. And so, yeah, this article basically, I think the title was something like This Job Could Save America. Mm-hmm. And it was referring to benefits brokers, benefits, consultants, you know, echoing some of what I said, that the great benefits consultants, great benefit advisors out there, I mean, these individuals are worth their weight in gold. And, you know, the issues that we've been talking about, whether it's economic depression or the opioid crisis, you know, unfortunately, that's been created by a dysfunctional health benefits infrastructure. So the folks getting it right, right? They're the ones that are really defining the next probably 20, 30, maybe even 50 years of that industry, that's what we just wanna pour gas on that fire, you know, because those folks, I mean, I hear stories basically every day now of what a difference it makes. I mean, just give you an example from just the last week or so, you know, one of these great benefits advisors working with the Montana-based steel manufacturer, 700 employees, you know, uh, I think nine states, 40 locations, and, you know, in the last four years, they took their healthcare spending from $8 million to $3.2 million while improving benefits. But here's the best part of it. You know, while now over half of American households have less than $1,000 of savings and virtually no, you know, retirement nest egg, uh, in part because it's an employee stock owned company, but there was this 30 year veteran you know, warehouse worker, you know, drove forklifts, making 45K a year. This individual just retired with over a seven-figure payout, you know, because, you know, it's pretty simple. That nearly $5 million went direct to the bottom line. That makes the enterprise more valuable. And so when you retire and you're, you know, you have ownership in the company, you can have that. And, that's what we call, maybe that's a good segue into the health Rosetta. We call that the health Rosetta dividend. When you take right. money that is previously been squandered in stuff that 
really isn't healthcare and does, you know, in my view, doesn't add value. You know, Institute of Medicine said $750 billion of, of waste. And this was back, I think that was a third of the spend when they said that PwC said, you know, over a, bill, a trillion dollars is non-value add waste. And so these folks are just kind of extracting out the stuff that actually doesn't help on health and then repurposing that. And that's what we call the health Rosetta dividend where, you know, some company might do what the manufacturer did. Others are investing in their community and kids and education. Some are putting into R and D, some are putting into profit sharing. I mean, ultimately that's up to the company as to what they do. And so that's really why we exist is how can we recognize and put into action the fact that there's more than enough money sloshing around in the healthcare system. We just squander massive sums. I mean, larger than most of the economies in the world are just our waste. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll give you an example, Dave. My wife gets an injection every month and the even months, it's the right cheek, the odd months, it's the left cheek. And she goes to a hospital. It's an $18,000 allowable amount, right? So it's the $18 it's the $18 is what's paid from her, our insurance company to that hospital. I can get that same medication sent to us where they'll just come to our house or come to her office and give her the injection. And it's uh, $5,000. Mm -hmm. The challenge is that she's a massive employer is to get that message to them because that's $150,000 a year that we can save for just one person. And you multiply that times the, thousand people that are in a similar situation with her company. I mean, that's a, that's a profound impact and that's just one simple thing. And so in terms of the Rosetta impact, I'm assuming it's a collection of things, but also an overall philosophy for how to fix healthcare. Is, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really three things. It is a framework, an open source framework of, right. you know, think about like almost Wikipedia. We publish it in the books and the website. Here's, here's this new blueprint of how to purchase healthcare smart. It's an ecosystem. And so this is a army, growing army of accredited professionals who are very, you know, deeply experienced in how to do this. And so, you know, we sort of try to be the intel inside, help them succeed. And really it's just enabling a network um, of great folks around the country. I mean, I, I sometimes the third thing is a platform and I'll, I'll get to that. But on that point, I'll draw an analogy that I think is, is relevant here in terms of the, the winning mindset to have. And I'll draw it with chief information security officers. These individuals recognize that what kept their corporate network secure two years ago aren't going to keep it secure today. Mm -hmm. And what's keeping it secure today won't keep it secure two years, probably even two months from now. And these individuals get together. They might be, you know, Aflac and Macy's and Microsoft, whatever. They, they aren't competitors. They realize there's always new threats. They compare notes and, you know, help, you know, <laughs> ensure their network stays secure. And frankly, in a lot of ways, the healthcare system, you know, at individual level, you know, when you enter the healthcare system, it's like the worst pickpocket haven ever you know they're always finding ways to to sort of fleece you and and at a you know like employer level you know they're basically there's been this massive wealth transfer from employers and employees to a wildly underperforming healthcare system that you know has the, these sort of easy to game models and so what people you know in this ecosystem are doing is just sharing successes and you know there's this philosophy you know give one get 10 it's probably more like give one get 100 because everybody pours in their ideas you know the smartest folks are often the most humble realizing there's always new things and so that's a big part of it and then the platform is just the reality is today it's very easy to buy cruddy benefits that's basically the default path it's more work it's definitely worth it but it's more work to buy great benefits and so we actually embark much more recently on, you know, even though we're tech people, we've pretty much been operating in the analog, you know, world of just get the process right. The tech can turbocharge it once you get the process right, but it was just right. all off. But then we realized, ah, there's actually some things that haven't been built that make it easier to basically simplify adoption. 
And so that's kind of the third pillar. You know, we've got the, the framework, the ecosystem, and then the platform. That's basically the health Rosetta. But in the platform, you're, you're not processing anything, or is it just really more of the... It's more, it's not really processing, like we're not in like claims adjudication yeah, or something like that. It's, it's more like some, there's some of it's super unsexy kind of regulatory compliance plan document stuff that actually you can find some real opportunity there. But then the other piece is making it much easier to essentially curate supply. You know, if you think about a health plan is a bunch of different puzzle pieces and, you know, I sometimes in my talks, I'll, I'll put up a picture of like a Mr. Potato Head where like all the body parts are in the wrong place. Right. Our health, plan, health plans are kind of like that. Like they kind of have all the pieces, but they're not in the right place. They don't work well together. And, you know, half the plan is, is various Band-Aids on our broken primary care system rather than just fixing, you know, the primary care. And so what we do is recognize that probably at least 95% of the so-called solutions in health benefits either are just a Band-Aid or they don't actually help. And so our network kind of curates that. And so we make it easier to find, you know, it's not like there's only one solution to rule them all for every situation, Mm -hmm. but even the best benefits consultants out there, it's an impossible task to keep up on every possible solution out there. But as a network of hundreds of people, all of us are smarter than any of us. And so, you know, we kind of curate the supply there and then essentially democratize the contracting of that. So, you know, there might be a good solution that a jumbo employer could get for helping people navigate the cancer journey, for example. But because there's only so many cancers, that company couldn't possibly ever call on a company that had 75 employees. You know, the reality is, you know, and having personally seen this from my friends, it should not matter if you're in a company that's got 75,000 people or 75 people who've got cancer, you need help, it sucks, and there's a lot that can be helpful. And so, you know, we provide a solution for that, in that example, cancer care navigation service. And, you know, for that 75 person company in that example, they can get access to it just like, you know, Walmart could. And so we've done some stuff there to make it easier to purchase, you know, these carefully curated solutions. Okay. I knew you were going to say that. I just, I had to ask an obvious, the obvious question, but also it sounds like as you're, as you're going through this process of reviewing, okay, is XYZ vendor a good solution? There is a a validation component to it. Can you talk a little bit about the validation process for something to get in the Cassie that you guys have? Yeah. I mean, to me, the ultimate validation is, can you prove, you know, and literally validate, and there's the validation Mm -hmm. institute that helps do that. Frankly, I don't really believe anything until it's been proven for about five years. There's so many broken promises in healthcare and, you know, this thing is supposed to solve that problem. And, and it's a pretty abysmal track record. I mean, I might start believing after about three years. And so, you know, we, we look as a community at those things, what's worked a longer period of time. And, and, you know, the, the vendors can certainly accelerate our belief in their track record. If they go to an organization like validation Institute and sort of get a third party, stamp of approval that their claims are actually backed up and, and can get proven by fifth grade math, you know, which a lot of this so-called return on investment on these things, you know, just don't hold up, unfortunately. And so that's kind of how we look at it. Yeah. Okay. Understood. And so um, moving, moving along in terms of the framework, in terms of describing the, the current situation, I have this broken up and essentially the current situation how and why we're getting fleeced and then doing it right. We've talked a bit about the current situation, but you had mentioned before about Americans going to war for less than what's happening to the healthcare arena, specifically the impact on families. And it's really kind of like a silent, I don't want to call it a silent killer, but it's definitely a silent suck. And that because there's not a lot of discussion about any type of framework of change, can, can you talk a little bit about what you mean about just that? Why should we be more alarmed than we are about the healthcare system in America? Yeah, I mean, it, there's a number of reasons. There's a, there was actually an article 
that was in the Wall Street Journal that was shortly before the 2016 election. And it shows data that Brookings and put together. And it basically showed that against this backdrop of decades of wage stagnation, that, of course, healthcare costs continue to go up. And it was brutal. Like, people aren't canceling their Bahamas vacations. They're literally, because they don't have wage increases, it's coming out of food, clothing, housing, transportation, I mean, really core stuff. As I said, we're fiercely nonpartisan, so we call this the Bernie Trump slide and basically say there's no way you couldn't have had a populist uprising when you look at this. And, and it's not just the money part of it. So, you know, we, we just talked about the greatest public health crisis in 100 years, you know, which is a self-inflicted wound. We're the undisputed world leaders in medical bill-driven bankruptcies. There's extraordinary rates of preventable medical mistakes and deaths. I mean, it's more than the entirety of deaths on the U.S. side during World War II every year from preventable medical mistake deaths. And every day there's 10,000 serious complications that were preventable. It's sort of like friendly fire and unprecedented levels of burnout and dissatisfaction by doctors. I mean, they're as much, you know, and nurses too, as much victim of this as, as anyone. So it's really quite remarkable just how broad-based the damage is. And I, I mean, I go into some other things in that chapter on, you know, we've gone to war for less. It's, it's really quite mm-hmm. remarkable that we've been able to spend, you know, 50 to 100% more than everybody else, yet lead the world in bankruptcy and produce bottom outcomes in the developed world and burn out doctors in the meantime and create the opioid crisis. I mean, that's a heck of an achievement. Yes. Another thing you had mentioned was uh, you talked about being nonpartisan and Bernie and Trump, understanding that that could be the debate in 2020. Uh, can you talk about Massachusetts as a primer for national health care just, just because it could come down to uh, that conversation uh, with the upcoming yeah. election? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, some would say that Massachusetts is a preview of coming attractions because, uh, you know, that was a Republican passed health reform bill that then was sort of mimicked by a Democratic administration. Mm -hmm. And if I have data that's from the, the state of Massachusetts, that you'd find something quite similar in other uh, states where it looked at their spending at a state level on healthcare, and even in you know some people call it Taxachusetts, you can only increase taxes so much. And so, since the turn of the century, healthcare costs, which you know are the combination of state you know contributions to Medicaid and the state employees, went up thirty seven percent. So, guess what it came out of? It came out of you know, mental health spending down 22%, public health down 30%, education down 12%, human services down 11%, infrastructure, housing, economic development down 14%, law and public safety down 13%, local aid down 50%. And, you know, when I was in Massachusetts, actually Boston recently, there was this interesting juxtaposition of because of this opioid book, they took me to ground zero for the opioid crisis in Massachusetts. They call it methadone mile, literally in the shadow of billion dollar medical towers. That week, the big health system there announced another billion dollar medical tower down the road. And in the, in the papers, they're reporting on this. Boston public school students were, quote, on strike, even though in a booming economy, they can't fund schools. And also that week, there was a article in the Globe that over half of Massachusetts schools had significant and dangerous levels of lead in their pipes. So we're literally poisoning our kids and defunding schools so that we can build more billion-dollar medical towers. I mean, it's just absurd. And so that you can then, you know, unfortunately, they're not unique in that situation in Massachusetts. And so we have to look at that and say, where are our priorities? And do we care about kids? Do we care about our future? 
And it sure doesn't look like it when you look at what we're doing right now. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I would describe that as, as you talk about how we're getting fleeced and transferring wealth. But before we move to that point, knowing that a lot of millennials listen to podcasts, I was at a presentation on Tuesday of this week, and there was an economist that delivered a message about what's going to happen in 2020, and then what's going to happen in 2030s. Basically said the 2020s is not going to be as great of a growth as the 2010s or 2000s. So a little bit of growth, but by 2030 and beyond, that we need to be prepared for a recession that was bigger than the one in the 1930s. One of the reasons, one of the major reasons for that was uh, baby boomers dying off and the economic impact of the cost of life in the last six months driving a huge portion of that. There's other reasons for that, but uh, figuring for this call, it's a, it's a great point. But what, what message would you send to millennials listening to this about their health care and the cost of health care if nothing happens? Well, I uh, quote in my book, another book, Unaccountable by David Goldhill, where he did a lot of research and looked at a typical millennial that was actually his company as a CEO right. of a company and what you know her lifetime earnings would be you know, based on raises and all that and basically living a pretty healthy life and found that essentially half, and this is, believe it or not, this is an optimistic scenario where healthcare inflation only grows at half the rate of regular inflation, which it almost always exceeds. But even in that optimistic scenario, half of her lifetime earnings would go to healthcare, some of which she sees, you know, I use this iceberg metaphor. So there's kind of the above the, the surface and then much of it below that's in the form of uh, everything from, you know, employer premiums, you know, Medicare taxes, so on. And it's, you know, really striking. I mean, if it grows at the rate of regular inflation, you're talking two thirds of lifetime earnings going to healthcare. I don't believe that's going to happen. This is the largest generation in history and larger than boomers. And you look at who's driven the adoption of smartphones, the internet, social media, better food, you know, so-called big food, big soda have had their worst earnings uh, recently. And, you know, the healthcare system and health benefits, frankly, are designed as a perfect polar opposite to what millennials want and value. They want convenience, technology, transparency, all the things that healthcare isn't. And they've got no loyalty to the old uh, world. And so that, I think, is a very underestimated piece of all this. And so, you know, I'm not an economist or prognosticator, but I definitely see that millennials, as they awaken, and the oldest of them are leaving the invincible stage of life, you know, where they start to pay attention to the healthcare system because yeah. they have their own kids and they've got some of their own ailments. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a generation that the status quo is just not prepared for at all. And, you know, the smart employers, you know, realize they're basically the largest chunk of the workforce. In five years, they're expected to be 75% of the workforce. And so what they will do is, rather than tearing away the old underperforming health benefits plans, you know, that's a lot of people even, you know, they don't like them, you know, they don't like change. They'll just open up a new door and they'll default new employees in you know, word of the mouth spreads and a good change management strategy, you know, they can move most of the workforce in three years, you know, millennials can lead the way on it. Hmm. So that's more of a positive message than I thought you were going to say. Mm -hmm. It's uh, more of a, hey, let's lead the chain. Let's lead the charge. But understand if you don't do anything, some really bad things could happen. But uh, yeah. yeah. And the other thing I'd add, you know, on the positive side is we just like to point out what works. And we tend to believe the Churchillism of, you know, you can count on Americans to do the right thing after they exhaust every other option. And, you know, one of the things you, you mentioned, the spending at end of life, well, it's all out of whack right now. You know, there was a doctor who wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal. He said, you know, we do things to elders that we wouldn't do to a terrorist at the end of life. And doctors often die quite differently because they know the limits of the medical system. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, you know, there was a there is an organization, Gunderson Health, out of La Crosse, Wisconsin, that is now replicating their success where their docs were sick of, you know, as they put it, beating up grandma at the end of life, you know, and 
they put together this program they called Respecting Choices, where you know you may want something different than me at end of life, but we both want our wishes honored and we want them honored by the healthcare system. And unfortunately, because a lot of people don't have advanced directives, the healthcare system feels an obligation to quote, do everything, which even though that's not what most people want. And so in that community where they started, they're now at the point where 94% of the community's got an advanced directive. The healthcare system honors that. They catalyzed it, you know, to their credit. And guess what? In that community, you know, NPR reported they spend 40% less per capita on Medicare than other places. So their wishes are honored. And as a nice byproduct, they don't squander that money. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, at that at that uh, same meeting I was talking to you about, I heard um, he was either Canadian or French. Like, it was based on the accent, but he was uh, there for the event. He was talking about the European healthcare system being quite different than the U.S., especially as it focuses on end of life, where I was able to draw a graph saying most of the costs spent in the European market are more on on the front side of life, where on the back side, it's clearly understood that um, they're not going to take heroic efforts, and it will be a respectful death, as you, as just like you described, but but uh, certainly want to have a practical um, a practical review on what medicine can do and what it should do. Um, you you suggest the same thing as it pertains to cancer treatment, and um, you want to talk a little bit about that. Well, it, definitely, but I just amplify that a little bit in that. Um, Ted Epperly, former president of the American Academy of Family Physicians, a wonderful guy and a friend of mine. You know, I remember when he was going through end of life with his mother several years ago, said, you know, Dave, it's pretty simple what people want. They want to be warm, dry, pain-free, and with loved ones. Mm -hmm. And all this other stuff can get in the way of that. And that really uh, hit me. And, you know, I just went through the end of life with my dad. He passed in November. And I'm very happy to say that I was able to get the, him in probably four years ago into a great Medicare Advantage program, one of the exceptionally good ones. And frankly, a lot of them aren't that great. Um, and, you know, the good ones are growing fast, fortunately. And it was a four-year Parkinson's journey. You know, it's certainly not a fun process. Um, but they made it suck a lot less and he didn't spend one day in the hospital, uh, and his wishes were honored and we probably saved the taxpayers based on what I know happened and what could have happened, you know, what happened with his progression and what could have happened if he'd, the healthcare system had sort of been left to its own devices. We probably saved the taxpayers a quarter million dollars. Um, so yeah, that's. That's, I just thought I would add to that story a little bit. Um, you know, on the cancer side, I mean, there's, of course, many dimensions to it. The most important one is get your diagnosis right. Um, you know, they, I think it's, um, the, if I, yeah, you know, I'll go check, double check, but I'm pretty sure I got the numbers right. So I can go on the conservative end. Mayo Clinic, when people come for a second opinion on cancers, they find 20% of the time they just don't even have cancer. Um, and 40% of the time they make major changes to the care plan. And so you got to get the diagnosis right. And, you know, and then the care plan, right. I mean, I think it's something like 70% of women who have breast cancer get chemotherapy that they know if they've done a pharmacogenetic test to see whether chemo would work or not, um, wouldn't benefit at all. And so that's a lot of, put aside the money, that's a lot of misery that we're inflicting on women going through that. And so you see right now, cancer is another one of these areas where just as, um, you know, we saw lumbar fusions explode and stents and things where there was very little evidence of, you know, clinical efficacy. Now we're seeing, you know, popping up all over. Now we're seeing cancer centers popping up like weeds uh, because there's a ton of money to be made. Nobody's made the case that cancer rates have doubled. But cancer centers have probably doubled in the last decade. And so it's one where you really got to get people into the right place and then help, you know, when they actually get the right diagnosis and the right care plan, then help them. I mentioned the kind of cancer care navigation. You know, it might be something as simple as 
to begin with to build the trust, helping you know somebody find a wig. Uh, but there's a lot of things that if people are helped along to keep on track, uh, you know, it avoids a cancer, you know, straightforward cancer journey from turning into a, a real disaster. And from a dollars and cents standpoint, you know, that's where it's so clear why employers want to, you know, spend a little bit of money to save a ton of money. You know, I think the company has like a three or $4,000 case rate and they can easily save 50 to a hundred thousand dollars, uh, consistently of a, you know, easily prevented hospitalizations and ER visits. So, you know, those are just a few thoughts in that area. In that example, I mean, you talk about cancer centers popping up all over the place. To what degree are you suggesting it's motivated out of greed versus motivated out of maybe not knowing how to properly diagnose a condition? Um, it is incentivized by a perverse set of incentives where you get paid more and then now there's extraordinary um, sums of money to be made in infusions and particularly inside of a hospital. and there's a lot of these cancer drugs mm-hmm. that people don't realize just because something gets approved by FDA, that basically just means it's safe. That right. doesn't mean it's effective or more effective. And you just have absurd um, markups that hospitals are doing on drugs that are often provide de minimis benefit uh, and really dramatic side effects. And, um, and, you know, it's of course a very fraught emotional time. And I think there's a lot of false hope being peddled in many of those cases. And, you know, or they're just simply, you know, they see, you know, it's like the the golfer who, you know, only remembers that 300 yard drive down the middle of the fairway, even though half the time he's in the woods or, you know, in the rough or in the <laughs> lake. There's some human nature with docs too sometimes where they remember the miraculous you know, situations and don't necessarily see the damage. And, oh man, you know, there was a a story that I heard recently that was really, really struck me where it was actually a benefits consultant. And he was talking about how a situation that happened very recently with his, his aunt. And so let me just read you this quote from his email. As my aunt lay dying in a hospital due to her inability to take time off of work to seek care as well as afford out-of-pocket expenses, I think about what we're doing and the impact it might have. She hid symptoms for the past 12 months and only revealed them after a collapse a few days ago. Turns out, unbeknownst to her and our family, she'd been bleeding for months. Turns out she has stage four metastatic cancer and now is hemorrhaging. Her thoughts were, I was afraid I couldn't pay my bills. That's just wrong. You know, and this was somebody who had insurance, by the way, and 70% of the medical bill driven bankruptcies are to people who have insurance. So that doesn't protect you. And I mean, I heard another story a few days ago where there was a mother who uh, her daughter was having some seizures and they weren't sure what was going on. And so she literally drove to the hospital parking lot. And if she had another one, she was going to go in, but she was afraid to go in because she'd get financially ruined by just stepping into the hospital. I mean, that's just crazy. You know, we, we don't need to accept that. I agree totally. And, you know, I think you also get to experience within our current PPO networks and our current, you know, the traditional healthcare system that we have now, you have folks that are trying to do the right thing, but are just surprised by the way the hospital system works. And the most common one that I hear about is went to a PPO doctor, sent me to a PPO network hospital, but there were people that touched me inside of the hospital that weren't contracted. So now I'm faced with bankruptcy or or, or whatever because I got a surprise bill that I didn't realize I was going to have. And so that, that to me is probably one of the more criminal things that our healthcare system does. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll be a little contrarian on this, not to say that that's a good thing, um, right. but there's a lot of attention right now on surprise bills and it's, right. you know, it's a problem and it's an exploitation of a system that's easy to exploit. But what I would say is I'm more worried about the unsurprised bill uh, that the PPO networks themselves, I mean, you regularly, I mean, this is the norm. I was just 
looking at data in Seattle, and it's not unique in Seattle, where the average hospital is charging five times the um, rate of uh, Medicare. And even after discounts, it's still like three times the rate of Medicare. And nobody's stopping that. And or no, not enough people are stopping that. Fortunately, some are. Um, but that's like the everyday thing where it's crazy where employers, you know, quote, rent a network. And all that network does is give them the privilege of wildly overpaying for things. So, you know, certainly get rid of the surprise bills, but it's the unsurprised bills that are really every day that have, you know, been there for decades now that need to get addressed. Well, yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. Uh, however, the we hear a lot, and I used to be the the head of sales and account management for the local Blue Cross plan, and those are the phone calls that I would get all the time. And I just, I hated getting them because there wasn't a good answer. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, th- I mean, if my fix there, not that you asked, but is because I've seen some stuff recently where um, there was some article in the Wall Street Journal saying they're going to force insurance companies to tell their contracts and it's like so they can get transparency or something it's like no. nobody talks about forcing geico to talk about jiffy loop prices <laughs> and it's like wait a second if you want to force something you know and i'm a free market guy but i'm also not into price discrimination and i'd say my simple fix would be force the hospital or healthcare organization to have one price they can choose the price you know, I'm not one who's necessarily mandating prices, but then that price gets communicated and it gets communicated as a multiple of, of Medicare. And then purchasers can say, is it worth paying five times or 20 times or three times Medicare rates? And almost every time the highest quality places have the lower prices. So if there's any correlation between price and quality, it's inverse, you know, despite the, the average Joe thinks you pay more for something, certainly in cars. You pay a bunch of money, you can get a Tesla, you know, paying not a much money, you get a Yugo. But unfortunately, we're paying Tesla prices for Yugo cars, mm-hmm. and we need to change that. Well, in I guess in, in uh, reference to your comment about hospital charges, I would say that when you look at Houston as an example, you have some that are billing 10 times Medicare and it still comes down to roughly two and a half to three times is, is the allowable amount. But the challenge that any network will have is that there's going to be an element of marketing. So XYZ Hospital has a better consumer reputation than another one. And there's not really a way to effectively compare quality based on some of the, the conventional tools that are available. Yeah. I mean, the... The way I've seen that overcome, I've got a case study in my book on Pittsburgh schools, and Mm -hmm. there's a very well-marketed academic medical center there. And at the end of the day, they did their homework and they realized what the pricing was, what the outcomes were, the quality. And, you know, this group of 45,000 plus teachers and the unions ultimately decided what was more important, the hospital execs, you know, Jaguar and compensation package or kids in education and their benefits and payroll. And so in that case, it was the unions who realized, gosh, we actually want the same thing as management. We want, you know, great schools, teachers to be paid fairly. And rather than being on opposite sides of the table, they have a committee that's exactly 50-50 balanced between labor and management. And they, they basically put them out of the network because they didn't deliver value. And right. so, you know, that's what it comes down to is, yeah, I get marketing works, but I also get it that education works too. And mm-hmm. that's where you have to kind of be willing to be clear on that and educate people. Well, and, and so in terms of the solution, you talk a lot about the healthcare solution being local. In this case, education obviously worked when you have all payers, meaning the employer and the employees, making a a very educated decision about, first of all, understanding the situation, and second of all, making an active, their their voice active in the process, saying, you know what, I can do without this hospital because it means more money in my paycheck and the same or better outcome. When you talk about healthcare being local, I, I presume that's what you mean. 
Um, yep. And you also talk a bit in terms of the problem that we have with the opioid crisis being kind of like the canary in the coal mine, or at least the solution to fixing the opioid crisis being the same for the healthcare industry itself. Can you talk a little bit about, well, first of all, what we mean by local, and then second, the framework of, of what you believe the solution to be? Yeah, I mean, the local is, you know, it, it starts with, you know, health doesn't start in a pill or a hospital. You know, right. it starts at, frankly, at, at mom, dad, home, neighborhood, community, you know, and, and then you get into the healthcare side. What's more local than interaction between an individual and a doctor or a nurse? Yet, if you look at, you know, a community like mine, over half of the dollars get extracted out of our local economy to out-of-town owned health plans and out-of-town owned health systems. And so, you know, it's about kind of relocalizing healthcare and get back to that health Rosetta dividend, be able to kind of repatriate that money that's been extracted out so that we can address senior loneliness or kids in education or whatever it might be. In terms of the the silver lining or what I'd call the silver lining in terms of kind of the like the opioid issue is the silver lining there is because it's a systemic issue and as I outlined in my book, unfortunately the government media has greatly oversimplified it. Thus the solutions have either not had an effect or had a negative effect in many right. cases. And so it's a systemic problem. You know, I outline 12 major drivers of the opioid crisis with employers being the unwitting enabler, you know, as you referenced earlier on mm-hmm. 11 of the 12. And so the point is, as you actually solve that problem, you go a very long ways towards solving the even larger problem, both upstream and downstream. So most of the attention has been downstream. Certainly, we care about the people who are already affected, and almost all of the public policy response has been around the people who are already addicted, and we need to address them. However, we will never get out of this mess if we don't turn off the spigot of new addiction. And even to this day, we prescribe at five times the rate of most countries, even after all the awareness. You know, this day, the second most common reason people go to the doctor is lower back pain after cold and flu. And the number one driver of disability is lower back pain. Well, guess what? The number one driver of opioid prescriptions is lower back pain, even though there's no evidence that that's the most effective way of treating lower back pain. It's, it's like, you know, you're driving down the road and your car makes a bunch of noise, you can crank up the radio and drown it out, but it doesn't fix the car. And so at best, it masks short-term pain, but the underlying problem gets worse and you might be fueling dependence and then addiction. And so when you look at the prescription, you know, after I made the diagnosis, there's several things in there, but I'll just highlight a couple because they're so straightforward and available to anybody, which is nothing created more fertile ground for the opioid crisis than our devastated primary care model, you know, where we have these drive-by appointments and, you know, you got to get people in and out in seven minutes. So prescribing a pill is a quick and easy way to do it, even though it's not effective. And so when you go upstream, stopping addiction before it starts, one of the case studies, in fact, also the subject of my TEDx talk, Rosen Hotels, you know, I had this hypothesis as I was getting into the opioid issue that if you had proper primary care and a good benefits plan, you wouldn't have the opioid issue that most employers are dealing with. And turns out that was true. Um, not because 20 years ago they said, let's, let's prevent the, you know, opioid crisis that we don't even know about. They just put in proper primary care and in proper primary care, fully actualized, they also have physical therapy and, you know, they can actually get at the underlying issue. So you get, those are two examples. Behavioral health is another one that plays in. I want to make sure that that's clear because you talk about primary care, but you also make a very important distinction about value-based, value-based care. And so I just want to make sure that you describe what value-based PCP means because the answer isn't just go see your primary care doctor more often because you're still going to get the same seven minutes in that world. So can you spend a little time talking about that? Yeah. So I I say value-based primary care to contrast with volume-based primary care. So one of the things you've seen in a lot of communities 
is hospitals, health systems have gobbled up primary care because a primary care doc can refer five to $10 million of value every year. And they're supposedly bad businesses. So why on earth would anybody acquire a bad business? It's not a bad business. It's a milk in the back of the store, the way they've designed it, you know, low margin to get you in for the high margin stuff. And so, you know, the primary care docs that have been liberated from the volume-based primary care, they will talk about the pressure that they faced to get patients in and out. And so when you're in a value-based primary care, it's a different dynamic where they're actually worried about health and well-being. You want to talk about true wellness, you know, to our earlier point, stop those so-called wellness programs that don't have a return on investment, as Al Lewis pointed out, but invest in proper primary care and, you know, when you remove distortions like volume incentives and remove distortions like docs only get paid when you see the whites of their eye, two thirds of the time, any doc will tell you they don't need to see you in person. They just force you to come in because that's the only way they get paid. Who can blame them? Well, you remove those distortions and you can not only address the acute issues people come in for, you know, and that's probably the only thing that's kind of happening in this volume centric hamster wheel primary care that we have. But then the other two things are almost completely forgotten in a primary care context in the U.S., but the ones that are emerging and really growing rapidly, they also address the rising risk, you know, lifestyle things. You know, it's going to be a train wreck, you know, in the next year or two. Having health coaches a part of the primary care team is a good way to, you know, address lifestyle disease, for example. And then the third piece, almost always forgotten, relates to the cancer and other complex things is when you have those high cost complex situations, the five to 8% of members in a health plan that consume 50 to 80% of the dollars, guess who people trust more? Their insurance company, their employer, or their trusted unconflicted doc, right? On where they should go. You know, it's very clear what the answer is. And so getting that patient to the place that doesn't overtreat, you know, to their credit. When Starbucks did a study with Virginia Mason, Virginia Mason found that 90% of the spinal procedures they were doing didn't help at all, for example. Right. They, they changed their way to their credit. So the, the docs know where to get them to the best possible care, and that happens to save a ton of money in the process. So we've talked about value-based primary care. You, you also talk about transparent open networks and transparency. What, what do you mean by that? Right. I mean, it goes back to our discussion around PPO networks that are very opaque and overpriced. And so the successor that we're seeing grow is the transparent open network. Kind of it's sort of the unnetwork where anybody can be in it um, at, if they're transparent about their pricing. And so you're seeing uh, a lot of folks do that. And then there's kind of a bridge to that that's quite popular right now, the reference-based pricing. That's happening a lot. And that what that tends to do is open up the discussion for direct contracts. The employer I mentioned earlier, that's a Montana-based manufacturer, they are doing reference-based pricing. But what that set the stage for is literally 3,000 direct contracts. And these are really super simple contracts. They're not these convoluted PPO network type contracts. And so it's very easy to do that. And so that's what we see emerging as the successor to these kind of value extracting PPO networks. Is there any part of the country where you see that happening more more frequently than others? Yeah, there are pockets. I mean, in fact, there's some of that going on in Houston, but probably the, the one that's gotten the most National visibility is Oklahoma, and they've ended up having a lot of medical tourism, you know, and they they publish their prices online. There's a company that's kind of productized what they're doing, makes it available to any employer around the country. And so, yeah, it varies some by locale, but it's really, it, it's actually happening everywhere, just it's kind of in degrees of variance. All right, I got you. So in terms of, I guess, to close, what message would you like to leave to the CEO, CFO, VP of HR, and other channel partners that you know, maybe we haven't talked about something that you really want to make sure resonates with, with the audience. Yeah, you bet. I would say number one is it's entirely in your control to do this. If you believe otherwise, 
I believe you've been hoodwinked by an industry that's enabled the greatest wealth transfer in U.S. history. You know, for, as I mentioned earlier, from the working and middle class to a wildly underperforming healthcare system. I, I've got a, you know, in my book, I think the second book, and on our website, compare the status quo to what you know is actually in place in some places. These high-performing healthcare systems. So it's not some you know futuristic thing. It's happening. It's just not happening enough. Fair enough. Dave, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for what you're doing to help change healthcare in the United States. Absolutely. My pleasure. And, you know, happy to be connected with anybody. You can go to healthrosetta.org or I'm at, at Chase Dave on just about all the social media uh, platforms and happy to be, you know, have our community be a resource or, you know, uh, my, you know, me be a resource. In fact, you can go to healthrosetta.org slash friends and download copies of my book for free. So, We don't want that to be a barrier either. Thank you for listening to this episode of Solving Healthcare. If you liked this episode, please rate it and also provide your comments. If you would like to know how this service or others could fit within your organization, or if you'd like to sign up for future podcasts and news updates, please go to www.solvinghealthcare.net and click on Contact.